0: Be near the end of the sermon, the last, um, the middle and last part of the sermon before we get to repentance. Uh, will explain this verse that we just sang. Love, let us love, I'm sorry, let us wonder. Grace and justice join to point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with His blood has secured our way to God. That's is the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you will open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34, at this point you might be able to memorize or quote from memory part of it as we have been in this same passage for several weeks now. Please hear the word of God. Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Yet, He is actually not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for indeed we are His offspring. of the resurrection of the dead some mocked but others said we will hear you again about this so Paul went out from their midst but some of the men joined him and believed also among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them let's pray Father again as we have read your word and as I seek to open it up and proclaim it pointing to always and only to Jesus Christ. I pray that He would be honored and I pray that um, He would dwell in all of our hearts um, through faith in Him. I pray in His name. Amen. Well, welcome to the seemingly never-ending sermon. I promised to finish it this morning Possibly. We started it on August 2nd, um, I'm sorry, on August 7th, and then we had a part two on August 14th. My wife and I took our daughter to uh, Covenant College last week. Uh, thank you for all your prayers for her. Um, her first paper, she made the highest grade she could make, and I am greatly relieved. Uh, I want to thank Warren Bridgman for uh, breaking the word of life with the congregation last week. This morning will be uh, part three of Defending the Faith. So if you will permit me to make a a few brief uh, comments uh, as a review of what we have seen in the previous two sermons. Uh, First of all, you will remember that Paul is in Athens, Greece, and he is attempting to persuade his hearers of the Christian faith. And like our own culture, Greece is decidedly a non-Christian culture. So we're asking for ourselves, what can we learn uh, from Paul's method of defending the faith uh, there in Athens? What can we learn about how, how we can do apologetics in a non-Christian culture, and apologetics, if you'll remember, uh, is defined as the study of how to defend the faith or how to persuade someone of the truthfulness of the Christian faith. We learned in the first part of uh, this sermon, uh, what, three weeks ago, that the starting point for developing a Christian apologetic is the Word of God. I said that first week, I repeated it again, that the Bible always assumes that it is the inerrant, inspired, and authoritative word of the true and living God. Even in Athens, where the overwhelming percentage of the population did not know, much less believe, that the word of God was indeed the word of God, Paul, nevertheless proclaimed it as God's word without hesitation or or apology and as I've said several times in the past two sermons I believe that this um, should be our method in persuading people of the Christian faith today of proclaiming God's word as God's word without hesitation and without apology and it also must shape uh, our method for how we go about doing apologetics. Before I finish my review, I'll, I, I feel the need to do a little backfilling. Uh, you will remember on August 14th, uh, that being the second Sunday of the month, we also celebrated the Lord's Supper together, and I was feeling a bit pressed for time. And... Um, and I still preached a long time, but I left some things out. And one thing that had really bothered me that I left out, I feel like I need to go back and, and uh, cover It's too important to leave it unsaid. You'll remember how uh, two weeks ago I was talking about the relationship between secular science and Christianity. And how secular science often rules uh, Christian truth claims out of bounds. And they rule them out of bounds without even considering them. By presupposition. Because things of faith cannot be considered as science, they rule them out of bounds. And you will um, you'll often hear that God, the Bible, and spiritual things have no place in the scientific response or in the scientific pursuit. And in my response. Uh, to those statements, I realized that I could have left the impression that the Bible trumps science. That we as Christians treat science as the enemy. I do not believe that science is the enemy. In fact, because God is the creator of the world. Because God is creator of everything in this world. Of everything in the universe. That instead of treating science as an enemy, we need to treat all truth as God's truth because He is the Creator of all things. He is the Creator of all truth. And so we can never misrepresent the truth to justify the Christian uh, position. Um, We can never close our eyes to any aspect of truth in order to protect the Bible. We must consider all truth claims, whether from the disciplines of biology or physics or geology or astronomy, and we must examine them in the light of truth. If we let our presuppositions cause us to bury our heads in the sand like ostriches, and not look truth squarely in the eye, then we are guilty of the very same thing that we say that secular science is doing to Christianity. Not only that, we also dishonor God if we are unwilling to consider His truth. If we are unwilling to, to look His truth squarely in the face... Because God is the Creator, all truth is God's truth. And we dishonor Him if we don't consider every fact that is presented before us. In fact, I'll go further. I believe that because we as Christians believe that God is the Creator of the universe... That we as Christians must strive to be the best biologists, the best geologists, the best astronomers, the best physicists, on and on and on. There's a lot more I can say about that, but now that I've gotten that out of my chest, I can root, uh, off my chest. I can now finish my review in two short paragraphs. Last week I spoke about, uh, or not last week, the uh, last time I was here, I spoke about the point of contact. I said that a point of contact between a believer and a non-Christian is the fact that the knowledge of God resides innately in everyone. That the knowledge of God resides in a believer and an unbeliever, even if the unbeliever doesn't believe in God. We are all created by God. We were all created in His image. And even though that image is grossly distorted because of sin, that image remains. Eternity has been planted in our hearts. Knowledge of God's power and His glory resides in every person. And the Bible says that because a non-Christian is born as a God-hater, that they suppress that truth. Unless you think that I'm talking about us versus them. I was born as a God-hater. Every one of us in this room were born as a God-hater. And but for the grace of God, so we would remain. But for God's regenerating grace and His... Um, his sovereign mercy thus we would remain and so I talked about uh, how we uh, or how I go about trying to uh, speak with unbelievers and how I try to um, Attack their system of belief and show them that their system of belief is actually an inconsistent system. That they are having to borrow from God or steal from God in order to live their lives practically um, in the day-to-day life that they live. All that being said. And just to let you know where I'm at in the sermon, I'm now beginning to transition into the meat of this week's sermon and away from the review. I do not expect an unbeliever to be persuaded to become a Christian simply because I have shown them that they are living their lives on borrowed capital, that they are living their lives having to borrow God's truth in order to be able to live their lives in any kind of meaningful way. Rather, what I'm doing by calling into question or trying to call into question their system of belief is I'm trying to shake their confidence in their own belief system. I want them to be open to hearing the Christian truth claims, but I know that I cannot argue them uh, into a belief in God. Just like when I discipline my children. I don't expect my discipline of them to change their behavior. Uh, simply by disciplining them. Rather, I want the discipline to soften their hearts, the discipline to open their ears so that they can then receive my instruction. And so that's what I'm trying to do then with unbelievers. There are two things that God uses to persuade a person of the Christian faith. I told the children when they were up here what those two things are. And it it does not have anything to do with winning an intellectual debate. The two things that God uses to persuade a person of the Christian faith are the gospel and an awareness of their sinfulness that leads to repentance. I can, if, if I could knock down every Christian argument that was ever presented, if I could argue eloquently for the existence of God, that alone would never convert anyone. That would never persuade anyone of the truthfulness of the Christian faith. Because it is only through the gospel that a person becomes a Christian. And so the message of apologetics is the message of the gospel. Look at verse 18, just to show you what Paul, what the content of his preaching was. Verse 18 Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because, why? What was he doing? He was, a, He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. See that? He is preaching the gospel. He is preaching it without hesitation. He is preaching it without apology. Because Paul knew that the only way a person could be persuaded from unbelief to belief is the gospel. The only way that a a person could be raised from the dead spiritually and be given life spiritually is through the preaching of the gospel. The message of apologetics is the gospel. I'm going to use an illustration to explain the gospel. You've seen me use this illustration before. I learned this illustration from from watching a pastor who was preaching in a pulpit. And uh, it made a lot of sense to me. And so I went home, I tried to remember everything he said. I wrote it down, and then I began practicing it. Then I began adding little things to it, to, and I made it my own. And I use it I can, as a tool in my tool belt that I can whip out without even thinking and, and, and use it. And I've used it to great benefit. I'm telling you all this because it would warm my heart if I were to be able to give you another tool. To share the gospel with friends or relatives or co-workers or neighbors. Um, I call this illustration the two hands illustration. First of all, uh, in my conversation with a non-Christian, I want them to understand that I believe myself to be a sinner. For me to point my finger and say you're a sinner doesn't help them at all at that point. But if they can understand that I am a sinner, that helps them across that bridge, so to speak, to begin looking at themselves a little more uh, honestly in light of God's Word. I tell them that I am completely unworthy of God's mercy and love. And For instance, I'll tell them um, for purposes of illustration that I sin against God at least one time a day. And um, they can generally say, agree, that they do one bad thing a day as well. Well, I then multiply that by the number of days in a year times my age, which um, I just had a birthday, um, it's upwards of 16,000 times. Uh, that I have sinned if if I've only sinned one time a day. And those sins are against God. It's actually more accurate, I will tell them, that I sin 16,000 times a day than it is to say that I only sin one time a day. Um, But... uh, still for purposes of illustration I'll use the the term 16,000 and of course that keeps going up with age Um, but I then go and tell them that each time I sin against God it's not just an outward act but it's an inward act if they could see into my heart they could see how self-centered how shamefully self-centered I really am how prideful I am, how judgmental I can be, how disrespectful I can be of those things that I know are honoring to God. And they generally can understand what I'm saying, because inwardly, in places where no one else can see, in our secret thoughts, we all know that we're pretty wretched people, that we dishonor God. In many shameful ways. And because I'm a sinner, my sins rest on me. Um, I I like to use a book to illustrate this. If I've got my duct tape Bible, it's pretty beaten up. That usually is a better illustration, but I use this. uh, Whatever book is available. If this is a book of my sins, first of all, it would be a lot bigger than this. Not only that, it would be a lot uglier than this. In fact, you wouldn't want to be in the same room with it because it would make you vomit. Such is the shame and ugliness of my sin. Such is the, the, my rebellion against God. And they are my sins. They rest on me. But what about God? How does He look on this? The Bible says that God is holy and just. Holiness means that God is morally perfect. He is so holy that He cannot allow a person with even one sin into His holy presence. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Well, here I am with my minimum of 16,000 sins, and the Bible says without complete moral perfection, no one will see the Lord. What does that do for me? Where is my hope that I'm going to see God if I've got, like I said, my minimum of 16,000 sins resting upon me? What is God's standard for entering into His presence? Matthew 5.48 Be perfect, therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 says, Just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Uh, for it is written, Be holy because God is holy. Well, here I am. Even if I had just sinned one time a day, I am very far away from moral perfection. Wouldn't you say? And so here I say to God, God, I expect to go to heaven because I only sin one time a day. I've got my minimum of 16,000 instances of rebellion still hanging on me, but I expect you to open up the gate of heaven and let me in. Can you see the folly of that? When God says moral perfection, complete holiness is His standard, for entering into His presence, and then I turn the screws a bit, because God is not only holy, He is also just. The Bible says over and over and over again, God is a just God. What does that mean? Well, Exodus thirty-four-seven says that God will by no means, He can by no means, leave the guilty unpunished. Huh? I've got 16,000 sins. God being just has to punish every, one, every sin I have ever committed. And if God simply let me slide, if He simply said, we'll overlook these sins, we'll put it aside, that would make God unjust. If God was unjust, God would no longer be God. What would you think of a state or a federal judge? who simply allowed uh, guilty criminals to go free just because he wanted to be merciful, just because he wanted to be well-liked, just because he was an easy-going guy. What would you think of that judge? He would say, he is unjust. Likewise, if God even lets one sin go unpunished, he would cease to be God. So it's at this point that I pause. And I ask a person, How is salvation possible if this is the case? This gives me an opportunity to hear what they're thinking and to brush aside very easily some of their unbiblical uh, concepts of salvation. And then it gives them an opportunity to really wrestle and say, You know what? If this is true, no one has a right no one can enter into God's presence. But then here's where I bring the good news. And I use John 3.16 because everybody generally knows, certainly being raised in the South, it was my, uh, my experience that everybody knew that John people knew John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent Jesus here to earth. Why? To take my book of sins away from me. But what did He do with my book of sins? He took my book of sins on Himself. The Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, God, being just, should punish sin, but now my sin has been taken away. Where is it? It is on Jesus. So what is God going to do? He punished Jesus in my place. God treated Jesus, second person of the Godhead, just like I deserved to be treated. Not only that, Jesus took on criminals' sins, he took on murderers' sins, he took on millions and billions and billions, are now that we're talking about the economy we have a little better concept of trillions of sins and he underwent the wrath of God in our place he took our sins on himself for us so that he could suffer our punishment that we deserved to have heaped upon us because God is a holy and just God Where are my sins? They are taken away. This is really good news that we don't often emphasize enough. He took away my past sins, my present sins, even my future sins which I have yet to commit were nailed to the cross with Jesus. Not only that, well that leaves me with a zero in my account. But that's not enough to get into heaven. Now, if this were a book of Jesus' righteousness, it would be a lot bigger. In fact, the book, Gospel of John says that it won't even, wouldn't even fit in the world, and it would be a lot prettier. Jesus did those book, did those acts of righteousness. They rest on Him. Here's the good news. Not only did Jesus take away my book of sins, He gives me His book of righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin by taking my sin in order that I might become the righteousness of God when God sees me he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ I am clothed in his righteousness now that gives new meaning to these passages in the Bible who shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord if we are in Jesus and we are surrounded in his righteousness at whatever angle God looks at us he sees the righteousness of Christ. And that is the good news. And that's only still part of the story. There's even something more wonderful. He gave me his Holy Spirit. God, the third person of the Trinity, God Himself lives in my heart and gives me power to obey Him. Who can and He convicts me of sins and He helps me to love Him every day. So He takes away my sins. He gives me His righteousness. He gives me His Spirit who lives within me. So what is your part in all this, I will ask. What could you do to help God save you 2,000 years ago? What can you do to to help God clothe you with His righteousness? What can you do to help Him give you His Spirit? Absolutely nothing. Nothing. God is the one who saves. All we can do is trust in what He has done for us. This is your part. To believe the gospel. To believe that you can't save yourself. But God can. And He did everything you need to be saved. And it's interesting to see people get excited at this point. Um, God does everything I need God would love me that much that He would send His Son. But in all that, there's an aspect of faith that's often easily overlooked. And that is true faith is a repenting faith. Look at verses 29 through 31. If you still have your Bibles open. In verses 29-31, through Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. For He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to us all by raising Him from the dead. The goal, the message of apologetics is the gospel. The goal of apologetics is repentance. Don't overlook that aspect of faith. True faith is a repenting faith. True repentance is a believing repentance that rests in Christ alone. You are not persuaded of the Christian faith if you believe all the the facts of the gospel, but you are unwilling to repent. If you are unwilling to own your your sinfulness, confess it and turn away from it, that is the nature of true faith. Your faith will only be as deep as you believe your sins are. If you believe your sins go all the way to the depth of your heart, then you'll have a faith that is able to reach all the way down to the depth of your heart and own those sins bring them to God and confess them if you believe you are completely unworthy and separated from God because of your sins and it sickens you to realize how rebellious you have been but then you are ready to cast yourself on the Lord Jesus Christ and then finally finally Look at the response. There's only two possible responses verses 32 and through 34. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among also, whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Two responses Some mocked, some believed. What is your response this morning to the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray together. Almighty God, I do pray that everyone here this morning would cast their trust completely and, and wholly on, Lord, on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that You would change them, that You would sicken them of, of their sins in order that uh, they might um, wholly lean upon You, knowing that they have nothing to offer that You have given them everything in Jesus Christ our Lord. I pray in His name. Amen.